The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a very scary bedtime story. Thank you so much for bearing with me in my recent absences. I'm so happy to be back in your ears. This week, I have for you an incredible story, and let me tell you a little about the author. Don't buy the hype. Jacob Stephen Moore was not raised by wolves. Feral children are capable of many things, but weaving wild words into flesh and fantasy isn't one of them. Lucky us, if it were, we'd all be speaking wolf. Moore's work has previously appeared in Nightmare Sky, Summer Bludgeon, and Night Terrors, Volume 20. He lives in Columbus, Ohio, and you can follow him on Twitter at Jacob Stephen Moore. This week's story will be one of 15 appearing in Jacob's debut short horror fiction collection, Nightfall and Other Dangers, debuting from Journalstone Publishing on April 7th, 2023, and I will have a link to Jacob's horror novel, The Unwelcome, in the show notes, which I know you will be dying to pick up after you hear this week's story, Mr. Mackenzie. One. I've never told this to anybody. God's honest truth, I haven't. I don't even think about it privately anymore. I think that might call it back. That might give it too much life. I don't want to breathe air into the balloon, see it bobble, twist, and start to rise feel the string go taut in my shaking hand. But I don't want to forget, either. Then nobody will be safe. I'm writing this for the time coming later, when the memory does fade. Maybe this won't keep me safe at all, but it might protect the children, even when I forget it all and the balloon loses its air and lies limp. They might be kept clear. No matter what else they've done, they deserve that much. It's the only thing I have left to give. Max and Libby are playing upstairs. That's how I remember it now. I'm in the kitchen. The floor tiles are cold through my socks. My head's stuck in the fridge, rooting at the back for something. I can hear the muffled sound of their play over the fridge's quiet, static hum. No laughter. 
just soft back and forth kitty dialogue like you'd hear in a play. Max followed by little Libby, always in that order, always call and response. The clock over the stove said eight or near enough to it. They'd begged me to stay up. Five more minutes, Laura. On to infinitum. And what the hell? I let them. They'd been good. They were always good. What was five more minutes of toy time? They'd sleep in tomorrow and be back on schedule by the time their parents' plane touched down at the tail of the weekend. Plus, I remembered how hard it was to sleep in the summer when you're that small. When the sun never seems to set. When the sky stays bright, well until after ten. This was late July. I didn't know it yet. But that was the end of summer. No August heat coming. No August coming at all. Upstairs, suddenly I can't hear the children's voices. I can't hear anything. There's stillness in the big house. I call their names into empty silence. Max! Libby! Playfulness stretches the syllables out. Something moves upstairs. Not the patter of small feet. Something big and heavy getting dragged across the carpet. I call out again. Max? No answer. But the children start talking again. Their voices are hushed, talking in high little girl whispers. I don't hear the heavy sound again. The fridge door is still open. I push it closed softly, still listening. The house seems huge around those whispers. I don't know why, but I creep silently to the bottom of the stairs, peering up where I know their playroom is. I lean out, putting one hand on the fourth step. Does the upstairs look darker? As a light burned out somewhere? More silence. Then suddenly, both sisters' voices cry out in chorus. Mr. McKenzie, Mr. McKenzie, Mr. McKenzie. I jump back, losing my balance, crash against the hall door at the bottom of the stairs. The heavy brass knob digs into my ribs. Before I get my bearings, I hear it again. That heavy sliding sound. Something very big and very dense being dragged over the carpet upstairs. The children start chanting again. Their voices mingle and crowd together. I can't make out the words now. It's in some child language I don't understand. Now I know for sure the upstairs hall is darker. And it's three voices now. Not two. Getting louder and louder from the playroom. Three. 
I don't remember whose idea the gig was. Not at the start. Best guess, my parents volunteered me, smelling blood in the water. A way to get me out of the house again. Really, the job felt like something pushed out of nothing space. Like Arthur taking the sword from the lady in the lake. Like something bestowed on me. But the quarter fields were mom and dad's people, so they all take credit. I hadn't met them before, formally. Some rich couple my folks met at some church rally over the winter. I guess they all got along pretty famously because I would be up sitting for their kids basically the entire summer. That's how my parents ran the ship back then. They sniffed something out. Some job somebody needed done. I'd get drafted on a handshake. And because their friends were all such good church people, I was expected to dance when the music started and not to bitch too much. That was all right, I guess. I bitched plenty, but that was before I heard about the money. Then I shut right the hell up. Stan and Genevieve Quarterfield, the parents. The kids were sisters, Max and little Libby, nine and seven years old, in that order. Stan was 40-ish, I think. The mom was a little younger both with these lean, private trainer bodies, the kind you'd order out of a magazine, if you could. They were in business together. I don't know what exactly they sold, but they had to fly around a lot to sell it. As far as I could gather, they pretty much lived on jet airliners. Keynote speeches, conferences, high-stakes meetings and dark rooms. All of it. It meant that they had to be able to leave at the drop of a hat. It meant they needed somebody like me. They couldn't or wouldn't take their kids with them. I never asked why. Back then, it didn't occur to me to ask questions. The Quarterfields paid me up front at the start of June. One big check with more zeros on it than I had ever seen. That money bought my summer. All of it. I had to be on call whenever they had to ship off, for just as long as they needed me at the house. A deal like that meant I couldn't make long-range plans for my break. But by then, I'd already made my mistakes with Reese. My social calendar was pretty much busted open. That part of the memory's already gone soft around the edges. I almost can't feel it anymore, even when I reach out for it. But I remember hurting bad enough that long days in some rich stranger's house seemed like some kind of escape. The money, and there was a lot of it, was just gravy. That's God's honest truth, too. The Quarterfields could have hired some service to watch their brood. They could have scooped up any of a hundred other bored girls in my neighborhood. They picked me. Or at least... I got picked. I said the money was gravy, but if you'd asked me back then what I'd do to get my hands on ten thou under the table, I guess I'd have told you just about anything. Of course, if you ask me now, I don't know what I'd tell you. I don't know if I could answer at all.
Four. We're in the motel now. All three of us. That's how I remember it now. Little Libby's arms wrapped around my thighs. I can see her reflection in the glass of the window, staring up at me with glassy eyes. She doesn't look scared, but her whole body's shaking against my legs. Max is on the bed, cross-legged, staring at the wall in front of her. Cold air rushes out of the AC unit beneath the window. A dull, rattling howl baffles all noise coming in from outside the room. I feel my phone go off. I let it buzz until the caller quits. Outside the window, the summer night is finally dark. The parking lot's got four cars in it. One of them's my Sentra. The rest were there when we got here. A single tall street lamp lights the whole lot, and moths gather like sharks around bait, striking and striking against it. Nothing else moves. The sky is clouding over, only showing slivers of the moon through. The hum of the AC unit, its hoarse and staccato. My nerves are on the tips of the razor. My brain is steel wool fuzz, scraping in my skull. For a flash, I forget the kids are in the room with me. I'm thinking about the little plastic bottle in my purse. I'm thinking about the lead taste of fear that's pulling in my mouth. I'm thinking about a hundred other things. The world snaps back. I hear Max's little toneless voice. When can we go back? Just a few more minutes, sweetheart. My nose pushes against the window, trying to see further into the dark. No headlights. No movement at all. It's near midnight now. I want to see my daddy. Libby now. I put my hand down at my side. She nuzzles into it. I just talked to him on the phone. He's coming to get you real soon. He doesn't know where to find us. He doesn't know about this place. I look down at her and try to smile. Your daddy's the one who said to wait here. Is he mad at us? For the candles? My heart squeezes. I sink down on my knees taking her little face in my hands. No, Libby, of course he's not mad at you. He's trying to protect you, and me too. Max's voice is sullen from the bed. He doesn't want to go to the house. He knows we were playing the game. He knows Mr. Mackenzie's there. I thought we agreed we wouldn't talk about that for a while. We broke the rules. You can't play the game halfway. Now Daddy's mad at us, and Mr. Mackenzie's mad at us, and it's all your fault. I almost don't look at her. I'm afraid of what I'd see sitting on the bed. A little girl, or something shaped like a little girl. 
But when I move toward her, Max is crying into her dress. I put my arm out. She jumps down and joins her sister inside the hug. I pull both girls close to me, breathing them in. For a second, I feel strong. I feel like an adult. You girls are so brave. I tell them. So, so brave. Outside, long headlight beams swing into the parking lot. I stand up, grabbing the girls' hands. I feel Libby and Max hesitate. It's only for a second. But I think they might fight against me. That they'd yank free and try to run. But when I tug their hands, they sniffle and follow me out the door and down the concrete stairs to the car. I liked the Quarterfields children just fine. I liked the house even better. The family lived in an old brick manor house, the kind that doesn't look right without ivy growing up the front wall. Inside was all sleek, modern decor, but the facade had literary quality to it. A kind of old English charm. It looked like how a boarding school in a novel should look. It looked like something out of another age. When I stayed overnight, I had my own guest bedroom with a bed twice the size of the one I slept in at home, with the softest white sheets I'd ever felt in my life. I could eat whatever food I found in the kitchen. I could shower in the big guest bath with hot water that never ran out, and the towels in the closet were just as soft as the sheets. When I got the kids to sleep, I could watch TV or a movie on the big screen in the living room, Or if I had the patience, I could set up the projector in the basement for surround sound. So long as Max and Libby were safe and fed and bathed and put in their pajamas on time, I could do just about anything I wanted in that big house. Sometimes I would just wander, losing myself in the maze of rooms, listening to the faraway sounds of the sisters playing somewhere in the playroom or backyard. I didn't understand Max and little Libby at first. I never had younger siblings to compare them to, so I chalked it all up to an experience. Libby seemed like your usual scab neat seven-year-old, but when she played with Max, there was a change. They both seemed muted somehow, running on emergency power I can't explain it any clearer than that. They had their playroom upstairs, situated between their bedrooms, and I'd bring a book or my phone up to watch them with their toys. I'd sit in the rocking chair in the corner by the closet. They'd kneel on the carpet. Max took the lead in all their games, even when they asked me to play with them, which didn't happen often. Max directed us, solemnly handing us specific toys or dolls and telling us which roles we would play. Libby didn't seem to mind, or she never complained to me, but mostly they would play quietly on the floor, in their separate hemispheres. 
They acted out arcane pantomimes, speaking each doll's dialogue in soft voices and nodding their little heads. All the kids I'd ever hung around before were noisy kids. I was a noisy kid myself. A screamer at the pool, at the park, shoving my big sister in the pews at Sunday Mass. But the Quarterfield sisters were quiet. Always quiet. After a time, the quiet started to creep inside me somehow. I started to get funny ideas I couldn't shake. Watching the two of them playing together began to feel like watching a performance. I could imagine that when I left the playroom, Max and little Libby would freeze in their places, holding dolls or toy trains or stuffed animals, or they would revert to some neutral pose, staring off into middle space. They'd wait for me to return. They'd wait until they were being watched again. I imagined that when I came back, they might suddenly be in another part of the house or someplace else altogether. I imagined them watching me, even when I could not watch them. But they were both such good behaved little girls, polite as well, unfailingly so, to each other as well as to me. Some sisters I know slap and pinch and holler when they get angry with the other, but I never saw anything like that between them. Only when Libby got something wrong in a game they were playing, did I see Max take a stern note with her. I couldn't understand the nature of the transgression. Their games were so strange, the rules so remote even to my high schooler's imagination. Once I took Libby aside, I asked her if she ever got to make up rules in any of the games. Her eyes got so big and she shook her head hard. I remember how her braids slapped against the back of her head. Back and forth, back and forth. I asked her why she let Max make up all the games they played. Wouldn't she like to take the reins for a change? Wouldn't she like to be in charge for a little while? But her eyes got bigger than before. Her face turned a wet paper color. She said Max didn't make up the games at all. The games, she said, were all Mr. Mackenzie's idea. Six. Something stirs. A memory from before. I'm panic walking through the kitchen, the den, the hall. Then back through the kitchen again, to start it over. I go around and around. In a long, crooked loop like that, faster and faster, the children are playing upstairs. It's my second week in the Quarterfield house. That's how I remember it now. I'm calling Reese again. Maybe it's inevitable. I watch my fingers at the numbers on the screen like they're fixed to somebody else's hand. The call goes right to voicemail. But there's no way his phone is switched off. The second time, I try from the corded house phone. It sails through just fine. Three rings, then... Hello? It's a girl's voice answering. Not a voice I know, but definitely not Reese. Gritted teeth don't hide the acid in my voice. 
Who is this? Huh? In the background, I hear somebody else murmuring. The girl who answered says, Shit, Reese. (laughs) I think I've got your phone. Then comes a sleepy giggle from the other voice. (laughs) Reese's voice. From somewhere else in the room. I hold the phone away from my mouth, trying to get my breathing under control. Steadily, I manage. Put him on the phone, please. Who is it? Reese's voice in the background again. The other girl, I guess, she just shrugs. Then suddenly, a miracle. He's coming through loud and clear. Laura? Oh god. My heart still kicks like a drum. Everything rushes up in me at once. All I want to say, it gets jammed in the door on the way out. All I can muster is... Did you get the box I sent over? I left it with your brother. I wasn't sure when he would... Heavy breath into the phone. Yeah. I got it. You sound exhausted. Are you sleeping any better? Laura. How's your arm? Laura. Stop it. I pause, looking at the phone like I'll read his expression on the screen. Stop what? A long, cool stillness follows. I repeat the question. Stop what? Reese, what are you saying? I hear his tinny sigh come through. How are the new meds working out? I don't know what you're talking about. Your mom told my mom. You don't have to lie anymore. It's all right. There's a white, hot spot of light that flashes inside my skull. A pinprick of rage shooting right behind my eyes. I want to go where he is. I want to drive to his mother's house, make him somebody, anybody, eat that moat of pity I hear in his voice. Instead, I breathe through my nose and twist my hair around my fist and say, They're working out fine. I'm fine. I guess you are. You sound mellower. So, can I talk to you? I've had a good few months. We're talking now, yeah? I hear footsteps on the stairs. I sink down behind the counter. The phone cord follows me down. I want to see you. I want to say I'm sorry. That's not a good idea. You're not going to let me apologize to you? I'm still in PT. My leg's still sore where they took the stitches out. You still think I'm nuts, don't you? I try to breathe in and out, in and out. Reese, what did you tell them? At the hospital? You must have told them something. 
I told them I fell on the fork. So that's what happened. For a moment, all I can hear is his breathing. I don't hear the girl in the background. Then he tells me. All right, sure. That's what happened. So, can I come talk to you? The kid's parents will be home tomorrow. I'll be free. Shit. I I don't know. Can I think about it? Something claws inside me. Something hungry and desperate. I have to choke it back. I have to stay calm, 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 or everything will blow up again. Slowly, the white hot pinprick unknots inside my skull. Slowly, I become myself again. I say, Let's talk soon. I love you. When I put the phone down, Max and Libby are peeking over the counter at me. Their eyes are huge and staring. When they look down at me, I wish I knew what they saw. I ask them, You girls hungry for lunch yet? And their little faces break open in gap-toothed smiles. But they don't stop staring. They never stop staring. I grunt and stand up, go to the cupboard, fetching down plates with cartoon flowers and princesses on them. Then I go to the silverware drawer. Everything glistens up at me. And I can finally smile. Seven. Faster and faster on into oblivion. When I tighten my grip, more details slip through the cracks in my fingers. Gone. Forever. Maybe I should have told somebody. One more person to brace up against. Maybe then I wouldn't be floundering like I am now. But no. This was the only path. The only way to keep it all at bay. The only way to keep it sleeping. My phone's buzzed twice while I've been writing this. I've been good. I haven't checked it. I haven't even looked to see the number come up on the screen. I know better now than to fall into that careful trap. But I can feel it looming. Lurking on the periphery. That feeling of being thrown into the shade of a presence beyond myself. Let the children have their name for it. I won't speak it. I won't even take the call. Maybe my writing all this is bringing it back to life. But I am not the air in the balloon. I am the motherfucking pin. Eight. Perhaps my first mistake was in curiosity. I never thought to ask any of the quarterfields where the statue came from or what it was for. Perhaps this was by design. The thing didn't match any of the manor house's decor, yet it never truly drew focus. At least I never thought of the statue as particularly strange. 
and the bright wash of glamour and wealth that was Max and little Libby's lives. It barely distinguished itself from the backdrop. You hear about natural camouflage. You hear about adaptation. It was a brass statue, tremendously heavy. The shape was of a cartoonish butler wearing a black painted uniform with a white towel draped over one arm and a silver platter raised up on the opposite hand. The man's face was ruddy with red circular cheeks and a smart black mustache and black wispy hair on the top of the head. The eyes were shut, creating an expression of bliss on the painted face. Satisfaction in a job well done, I guess. The paint was chipped in places and stained from the children's fingerprints. Because when either Libby or Max would come past the statue, they would pat its head or run their hands across its face. Hello, Mr. Mackenzie, they'd say, or... Mr. Mackenzie, so nice to see you again. They'd say this with affected British accents, of course, and hold their hands over their mouths and giggle. Or Libby might giggle. Solemn Max remained as stoic as always, and would greet the statue with a grave, drawn face. The name, of course, came from the brand. Around the inner ring of the platter's surface, the words Mackenzie Company were stenciled into the metal, along with a trademark symbol. This platter also had circular grooves in its surface, three forming a triangle in the center of the larger disc. These could hold something in place, I assumed. Drinks, or perhaps candles. The statue was of a butler, after all. His function was to serve. All these details come to me now, but I can't really say I registered them during my time in the Quarterfield house. A fear grows. I wonder, are these memories traps as well? I know my thoughts are not my own. I know I'm not safe. But surely my memories, formed before that night, can't be touched. Can't be grabbed and manipulated like the limbs of one of Max's dolls. But there is no Mackenzie Company. And even though I've found butler statues similar to Mr. Mackenzie, none quite match entirely. The pose is off by a degree, or the face is wrong, or the platter is too large or too small. The children loved him, of course, in the way only a child can love. Even their love for a toy is real, or something beyond a toy. But the fear grows and grows. I should not write more than this. I feel the trap closing all around now. The phone buzzes without stopping. I should throw it away, smash it under my heel. I should throw the story in a fire and watch to make sure it burns completely. But I do not want to forget. 
I'm afraid of that more than anything. Even more than I'm afraid of Mr. Mackenzie. I can be strong a while longer. There's more to come. Much more. And I have so much more to say. An addendum. I don't blame the Quarterfields for what came later. At least, I can't put much blame on the parents. I didn't speak with them much. But they really seemed decent enough. They paid me well and treated me kindly. And they tried to safeguard their girls as best they could. Clumsy, though their efforts were. Clumsy and halting. They did not protect me. Perhaps they thought I'd be kept out of it. I can't speculate, or I choose not to. None of it makes any difference to me now. But for the children's part, I can't make my mind up in one direction or the other. Seven is an innocent age. Maybe nine is too. But the girls weren't dumb. They reasoned just fine. So I can't call what happened later with them inadvertent. Everything was too finely laid out for that. Too carefully orchestrated. They had a plan in play. The game had rules. Even if they were only following them blindly. Did they understand? In their hearts, did they grasp it at all? Perhaps not. Some things are so terrible they can only exist by chance. But the other things... The worst things... They can never happen on accident. The air suddenly becomes cold as I go up the stairs. I don't hear the AC turn on in the house. But I feel the blast, the sudden chill. The hall upstairs is darker. It's like the color has gotten halfway drunk out of the walls, the carpet, the air itself. The door into the playroom is shut. Max and Libby, I can hear them chanting behind it, along with that third voice, deeper than theirs, deeper than any man's. Behind the door, electric lights flicker like flames. The door has a chain to be fastened from my side of the door. Somewhere in the neighborhood, a dog starts barking desperately. That's how I remember it now. As I'm coming up to the door, there's sudden quiet on the other side. I push through as though into a dream. The room on the other side. Dark. Consuming dark. Shrouded by the blackout curtains over the window, which faces the street. The only light comes from ten tiny candles, arranged in a ring, all dripping wax onto the carpet. Max and little Libby are in the ring center. Libby sits in the purple plastic chair from their play table, 
takes a moment of my eyes adjusting to see she's tied to it, hand and foot, using what looks like a jump rope. Max stands behind her. One hand is on her sister's shoulder. The other clutches a small, plastic butcher's knife from the toy kitchen, tucked in the corner of the room. The knife hasn't got any edge on it. It wouldn't cut butter. But Max has it raised in her fist, with the point aimed downward at her sister's neck. It's this tableau I see as I first come through the door into the room. Both girls stop and stare at me with the biggest eyes. The flames around their feet light up only the bottoms of their faces. Their eyes, those huge eyes, stare out of the darkness. Outside the circle, facing towards the girls, the statue of the butler stands resolute. He's beautiful in the candlelight. That's the thought that strikes me first. His faded colors, his chipping paint, all rendered whole and gleaming by those flames. He's facing away from me, towards the girls. I see for the first time that on his backside, the coattails of his painted uniform are separate from the brass of his body and dangle independently, nearly touching the floor. Behind them are drag marks scuffed into the carpet, leading towards the door, towards me. I can't see his face. I watch the girl's gaze sink from me, looking at Mr. Mackenzie. I'm suddenly consumed by a notion that the statue's face has... changed. Not an expression, but that it's been replaced, altered at its core. As different from where it began as my face is from my mother's, from Reese's, from little Libby's. The platter on the statue's outstretched palms raised towards the girls in a gesture of offering. No, not an offering. The realization hits like a knife between the ribs. Not an offering, a supplication. And on the platter's surface, five more minutes, Laura, begs Max. Her face solemn. Libby blinks up at me. She looks close to crying, but her voice holds steady. Yes, five more minutes. Please, Laura. I look from one face to the next. Words won't come. I'm shocked numb like I've been drenched in icy water. Soon the cold will come. The cold or the fear. But now, I'm calm and slow. I hold my hands out towards the girls. The smile on my face feels like it belongs to some other girl. Because it does. Some other girl is driving. Somebody braver than me. No, this other girl says in my voice. It's past your bedtimes. Slowly, Max nods and pats her sister on the shoulder. 
She steps gingerly out of the circle of candles, coming towards me with the plastic knife. She presses it into my hand and pads out of the room behind me. Little Libby shrugs out of her bonds easily. She stands, stretches her short legs, then crouches to the ground. I see she's going to blow the candles out. I have a sudden vision of the room plunged in total darkness. I imagine hearing things moving in that darkness. Low dragging sounds and low dragging voices. I say, leave those alone. I'll take care of them. Libby stands back up and hops out of the candle ring. Before she quits the room, I feel her arms wrap around my leg. She's little, but she's strong. Her grip crushing. I love you, Laura. She says. Then she's out in the hall with her sister. Slowly, I back toward the door. I don't blow the candles out. The numbness holds, but the fear claws at the edges, gnawing, scrambling for purchase. The open door bumps against my back. I squeeze past it, out into the hall. Libby and Max are waiting at the top of the stairs, watching me. I think Libby is crying a little. Max has her arm around her sister. Their game from before, forgotten. I look toward them and try to smile again. From inside the room, the deep sliding sound comes scraping quickly toward me. I slam the door shut. I must have screamed because my breathing is suddenly ragged, my throat all scraped up inside, my fingers scrabble on the playroom lock chain. Finally, the peg slides into the groove. Did something tap against the inside of the door? Something heavy. Impossibly heavy. Something two small girls could never move by themselves. Had I heard something breathe behind the solid wood? A voice? A word? I get the girls down the stairs, out through the hall, out to the front lawn. Libby's got my hand tight in hers, almost leading me forward. In my other hand, I'm dialing Stan Quarterfield. I almost dial 911, but something stops me. Some nameless thing inside me tells me these girls need their father. I look up at the front of the house. Between the blackout curtains, I can see the light from the candles, flickering, weakly. But I can't see beyond that, into the room. I can't see a brass statue, still standing by a closed door, waiting for two children who are never coming back. The phone in my hand is ringing. I let it drop to my side. Max leans against me, her face rigid. The light in the playroom window has burned out. From my other hand, I can hear Stan Quarterfield's voice calling out. Hello? Laura? Hello? But it's like I'm lost in the dream. Numb. And calm. And slow. It's like I'm not even there at all. The statue. Mr. Mackenzie. 
it had turned around. The platter upraised had faced towards me. The thing laid out on its surface had squirmed slick with wet in the light from the hall. It had been closer. It moved, dragging itself toward me about two feet. Perhaps that's all it can manage under its own power. I had interrupted it. Stopped the game before it could begin. But it had moved. I had seen it. Turning, coming straight toward me. And the eyes on its painted face. They'd been open. Wide open. They'd been human eyes. Getting near the end of my paper now. They only give me so much here. I guess I'm lucky they give me a pencil at all, considering. But I've still got enough left to write by. And enough inside my head to fill a hundred reams. I can feel them watching me. Through the cameras, through the bars. I know what they think they'll read when they take it from me. My story. I take no pleasure disappointing them. But I can't give them what they want. I can only give them the truth. Whatever it might cost me. Let them hate me for it. The children are safe. The children are all I care about now. I'll finish it. I'll finish it all. I'll wear this pencil down to the nub. I'll write on the wall. I'll write on my own skin, in my own blood, if that's what it takes. I talk with Stan Quarterfield for three minutes. That's how I remember it now. He stays calm when I tell him about the statue. In the background, I hear him call out to somebody, some other name, and the woman who answers is not his wife. He listens silently when I tell him about the candles, the plastic knife, the sound of Mr. Mackenzie sliding against the carpet toward me and battering against the door. All he says is, Christ! It came back. It came back. Only then do I start to really understand. He asks if I locked the playroom door, and he's glad when I tell him yes. He tells me to take the children, go to a motel. He gives me an address, a room number. Like he prepared this. Like there was a plan, a failsafe, all from the start. But I can hear the fearful undercurrent in his voice, and know that's not true at all. He'll pay for the room, he says. Go there and wait with Max and little Libby, and he'll come and pick them up. I'll be relieved of my duty to them after that. All of them. I'll have my summer back. What's left of it. There's a quaver in his voice when he tells me how grateful he is to me. But this feels forced, somehow. His tone underneath is grim as stone. I ask him if he wants to talk to his girls, but he says there's not time. He says he'll be there soon enough. 
and I should get to the motel. I hang up. I wonder then, if Stan Quarterfield is afraid of his daughters. Then I put it out of my head and bundle the girls into my car and start to drive. The first call comes in a few minutes before we arrive at the motel. Mr. Quarterfield's name and face comes up on the screen. I answer and stow the phone between my cheek and shoulder, keeping my hands on the wheel. I don't even have time to say hello. Stan Quarterfield says, Where are my girls, Laura? A cold thrill raises every hair on my neck. I'm sorry? Where are you taking them? My girls, Max and Libby, where are they? It's his voice. Really, his voice. But there's something beneath it. A rumble, a vibration. I heard it before, at the house. I heard it in the playroom behind that locked door. The third voice, the deeper voice, chanting with the girls. It's there, inside Mr. Quarterfield's voice. Just beneath every word, low and harsh, like brass scraping over carpeting. Where are my girls? You took them. Where are you going with them? I say, you told me to take them. You told me where. I'm crying suddenly. Now the fear breaks through and I'm crying. Max and little Libby are in the back seat, buckled in and as quiet as ever. They'll hear the terror in my voice. I swallow hard, trying to cram the fright back down inside myself. I say, I don't understand. But I can barely get the words out. Come back to the house. I can get them from you there. I picture the eyes of the statue, suddenly wet and blinking. Real human eyes inside the painted brass face, not fixed in the metal, but peering through, looking out from some other place. I imagine the voice on the phone coming out of those holes in the brass, reaching out to me across incredible distances, across the dark night or the dark of space, the voice of something old and huge, something patient, something that wanted the children. But I didn't know where I was. I didn't know where I was going. Into the phone I say, you're not him. You'll never be him. I hang up and toss the phone aside. That was the first call. This is the second. We arrive at the motel. We check in and wait. Sometime during that wait, I call Reese 
or he calls me. Yes, I think I call him. That memory hasn't gone yet. My nerves are little live wires under my skin, humming high and thin. I have to talk to somebody, somebody who wasn't an adult and who wasn't a child. I call him, and on the second ring he answers. That's how I remember it now. I hear the line click open, and I don't even wait for him to talk. It all pours out. Reese, thank God, I I just had to, I, I just had to. Then I'm blubbering. Words tumble over each other in a kind of soup. I can feel Max and Libby staring at me with concerned eyes, but I can't stop myself. Reese is saying something I can't hear under the sound of my own voice. I'm sorry. I tell him. I'm sorry, and you can send back the box if you want to. You were right. You were right, and your mom was right, and my mom was right. Everybody was goddamn right about me, but I don't care. Just talk. Just say anything at all. Talk to me about anything you want. All right. Reese says. Tell me where my girls are, Laura. For a moment, I stand very still, and the phone still pressed to my ear. I can hear breathing on the end of the line. Reese's, and something beyond him. I hang up and I very carefully slip the phone into my purse. I think about the plastic bottle of the new pills and the purse next to the phone. I think about screaming. Instead, I creep to the motel door and test the lock one more time. The room has a chain lock, just like the playroom door. It only fastens from the inside. Fourteen. Out of room now. And time. But I've got down enough. If they'll let me keep what I've written after they're through, I'll be able to cling together a good long while. Oh, they'll pour over it for sure. They'll pick me apart with my own words. Hidden meanings, code phrases, unconscious revelations. Anything to pin me, anything to screw my guilt down tight. But it won't help them. They'll never find what they're looking for, these detectives. This was never a confession. This was barely a story. It's only how I remember it happening. Soon that will slip away, too. But for now, it's a wall. A shield. To keep him out. The thing inside the statue. The thing that wore Stan Quarterfield's voice as a mask. To trap me, just like these detectives want to trap me. They both want the children, but Mr. Mackenzie would win that foot race if I talked. He'd get to them first. He's old, and he's patient, but he's not slow. What does distance mean to something like that? Without the masks, without the statue, he might as well already be there. But the detectives would never believe that. 
They haven't seen what I've seen. I could never hurt those girls. But everybody keeps asking, asking, asking. That means I'm winning, doesn't it? That Mr. Mackenzie hasn't gotten them yet. Where are they? I couldn't ever write that down, even if I knew the answer. Ask me where Stan and Genevieve Quarterfield are. I hope they're far away. Or at least far enough. They have the money to run a long time. But the detectives never ask me anything about the parents. Only the girls. And they ask me. And they ask me about the fire. The fire that started in the playroom. I hope Max and Libby are safe. God's honest truth, I do. I hope they think about me, but in time I know they'll forget. What bliss. What peace. But I have to be careful. I don't have any illusions anymore. Someday I'll make a mistake. That day's coming. When I'll slip up. When I'll forget. I'll let Mr. Mackenzie in and lead him back to the girls. They can play their games forever. Bedtime never comes. Summer never ends. That day will come. But not yet. Please, God. Not yet. I can hear the detectives coming back now. Just as well. This is the last of the paper. They'll take it from me. And maybe they won't give it back. I'll handle that as best I can. But first they'll try to sugar me up. They'll ask me if I'm comfortable. Too hot. Too cold. They'll ask me if they can get me anything. And now I finally know what to ask for. I'll tell them I want my purse. It's in evidence right now. But they'll get it for me if I ask. I don't want the phone charger that's buried in there. Or the half-gone bottle of tiny white pills. I want to see what I brought here. From the Quarterfield house. The thing I took from Mr. Mackenzie's platter. I want to touch it. Holding it in my hand. I want to feel it wet and slick and squirming then I can be satisfied then I'll know I saw everything I remember then I'll tell them I want to sell and a door that locks from both sides Thanks for listening. Thank you so much again to Jacob Stephen Moore for Mr. McKenzie. This was a fantastic story. In fact, uh, one of the reasons it's out pretty late is because I wrote to him on Wednesday because that's when I 
find I, I read it or I received it I can't remember and I was like I need this story in my life this week so I wrote to him and said please can I leave use it this week uh, I know it's short notice and um, it was it all worked out and I really love this story I hope you did as well again thank you to Jacob and fantastic author I, oh also a reminder there's a link in the show notes to Jacob's novel, The Unwelcome. So please go pick that up and the upcoming novel, um, Nightfall and Other Dangers, or short fiction, short horror fiction collection, uh, as it's actually called. Uh, sorry, it's very late here. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram. Um, there's a Facebook group if you'd like to join. Um, all fun places to be. There's a Discord that I have not checked in a long, long time. I promise I'll, I'll I'm going to try to get better about that. Um, I've had a few meetings this week with my bloody disgusting crew, and we're talking, getting uh, me just figuring out how to get a little help around here, around these parts, and um, figure out how to get some stuff going that. Again, if you're new here, I've run everything my, on my own. I have no production team. I have no... Uh, I am the sole <laughs> person here uh, on this podcast. So, yeah, it's been a journey, and I think I'm at the point where I really need to get a little help, especially because I'm going to be working on some projects outside of Scare You to Sleep coming up. Um, I can't talk about them yet. You are so used to hearing me say that, <laughs> but... Um, I'm sorry, the podcast world, things take time, um, but I do have some things coming up. I have some very exciting things coming up, so um, check in, keep coming back, and find out what those things are. I'm sorry, I'm very tired. I didn't bake this week, if you were wondering. Oh, I did bake some biscuits, some really quick buttermilk biscuits. Those are, like, super easy, though, um, and I hardly ate them because I... If you want to become a Patreon patron, you can go listen to my series, Ramble You to Sleep, where I just kind of talk about life and things and just whatever's on my mind at the time. And in this month's Ramble You to Sleep, I talked about my week going to my brother's wedding and how I got really terrible food poisoning so my stomach's been kind of recovering this week, so I'm sorry if you look forward to hearing every week what I baked, but I didn't do much baking this week. I was just trying to recover my body. <laughs> um, remember that on the 30th and 31st, if you happen to be in Long Beach, I will be at Midsummer Scream. So excited. Again, it's my first in-person thing ever <laughs> to ever meet anybody so I'm really hoping some of you show up. Um, I don't know how many of you live in the LA area or happen or are going to be traveling for this convention or are going to this convention at all. It's a huge convention, but I hope to see some of you. I'm going to be handing out some postcards. Um, the postcards are mostly for people who haven't heard of my show, but if you have heard of my show, I'm happy to like sign it for you and take a picture with you. I'll be at a booth with um, several other amazing podcasters. So it's not just me. You get a lot for your, a lot of bang for your buck and not to mention the entire convention, which is so cool. If you are still considering going and you're kind of on the fence, there are some videos on, um, on YouTube 
from the 2019 Midsummer Scream. They did one last year, I believe, in like Pasadena, but it was like a mini version. And then, of course, in 2020, it was canceled due to COVID. So if you look back for Midsummer Scream 2019, you can get a an idea of what it's like. It's if you're a horror fan, it's like it's like Disneyland for horror fans. It's like all these mazes and just cool people and amazing panels and stuff. And I'll be there reading a story. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about it and nervous, but very, very excited. And I hope to meet a couple of you. Um, Please say hi. So I don't feel like the only person at the table who's Uh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm so worried about that. I feel like I'm just so worried. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, positivity. Let's put some positivity in the world. Um, I'm again, it's very late. I'm very tired. Um, This was my own doing. I did this to myself. Don't feel bad for me. Um, (laughs) uh, I think that's all for this week. I don't have any announcements other than the Midsummer Scream. You can join Patreon again. Um, a lot of fun there. Uh, bonus episodes come out um, pretty frequently. I think, I think anyway, um, because I do all the work for them, so they feel frequent to me. <laughs> but uh, we're almost finished with Frankenstein. I believe this next installation of Frankenstein, I don't, I, I think it's going to be the last. And if so, for my $10 patrons, I will be creating a massive like Frankenstein audiobook for you. I'm going to be putting all the files together and that's going to be a $10 perk is getting like access to the full thing. So you don't have to click through each episode if you don't want to, and you want it all in one go. And the next one I'm going to be delving into is probably going to be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I really love that book. I think it's shorter than Frankenstein. Uh, I read it recently, and I read it all in one night, so I th- I'm pretty sure it's shorter than Frankenstein, because I don't think I could read Frankenstein all in one night. Um, so yeah, uh, let's. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to sleep. I have a busy day tomorrow, helping a friend go pick up a kitten and um, other stuff that I, I, again, I'm always like, I said this in my Ramble You to Sleep it's so hard to not like dox yourself sometimes, especially because I like talking with you and I like chatting. And sometimes I'm like, Hey, here's the exact address and time I'm going to be at a location. And that's, that's not internet safety. I, I should have known from growing up in the early two thousands where we had all those PSAs about staying safe on the internet, but here I am being dumb about being on the internet. Okay, I'm clearly just tired and I need to go to bed. And again, I have an early day of kitten looking at tomorrow. So I will talk to you all next week. I'm so excited. I think I'm going to be doing something old and dusty soon because I had a few requests for that. And I I think it has been a while since I've done another older story. And yeah, I'm Oh, also, if you have any suggestions for older stories, um, I have it has to be within um the creative commons or um it's it's got to be out of its copyright and i believe this year it means anything before 1926 i think i think that's the the cutoff date right now i could be off by a year or two but um so just keep that in mind if you're going to suggest older stories 
um, it's got to be something I can legally read, you know, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so feel free to suggest any old stories you like, and I'm happy to put them on the list for old and dusty stuff. Okay, I love you, um, go get some sleep, drink your water, and sweet dreams.